Chapter Two of Nequa or the Problem of the Ages by Jack Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jeff Burke. In San Francisco. I was in the parlor of the Palace Hotel in San Francisco. Since my last visit to the city, I had circumnavigated the globe. During the last three years, I had not only again visited the leading points of interest for tourists in Asia, Africa, Europe, and Australia, but had extended my travels into the frozen regions of the far south on a whaling voyage. Yet I had not found that for which I was searching. My failure had brought a feeling of intense sadness and depression which I shall not attempt to describe. For fifteen years I had been a wanderer on the high seas. I had traversed every latitude from Greenland to the South Frigid Zone, and was now mentally asking, where shall I go next? I had determined that I would not give up this long-continued search until it was crowned with success, or death had intervened, as long as there was one spot on earth unexplored. Thus pondering in my own mind what to do next, I picked up an evening paper, and abstractly glanced over its pages in the attempt to form an idea of its contents by reading the headlines. In the editorial columns, my eye rested on the caption, Off to the North Pole. This was travel into a region I had not penetrated. I was at once interested, and glancing down the column, I read the comments of the editor. The discovery of America, he said, was the attempt to discover a more direct and consequently a nearer route to India by sailing westward. The object sought for was not found, but the search gave the overcrowded and oppressed millions of Christendom a new world, where they might work out their destiny in conformity with the ideal of the founder of their religion beyond the reach of the political and religious despotisms of the old world. And why may not this venture, even though it fails to reach the pole, ultimate in discoveries of inestimable value to mankind? We hope so, and hence we wish the most abundant success to the expedition now being organized in this city by an experienced traveler and navigator, Captain Raphael Gano. The paper dropped from my hand. I was overcome. My senses were paralyzed my heart almost ceased to beat. As the full import of this unexpected revelation dawned upon me, I arose and paced the floor. My God, I exclaimed, this cannot be, it must not be, but how can I prevent it? All the arrangements are perfected, I cannot, I dare not under the circumstances speak the word that possibly might prevent this perilous undertaking. I was powerless, but I soliloquized, if I cannot prevent it, I must join the expedition, for never again will I permit him to leave me. My mind was made up. I was in the prime of life, about thirty-five years of age, and had traveled extensively. I was familiar with ocean navigation, and versed in all the sciences taught in our higher institutions of learning. I would make application for the position of scientist, and failing in that, would enlist before the mast as a common sailor, if nothing better offered. I turned to the mirror and surveyed myself long and earnestly. I raised myself to my full height and critically viewed the womanly face and figure revealed to my vision. Though not masculine, my form was strong and muscular for one of my sex, and with the proper disguise it would do. For the first time in years I had donned the habiliments of woman. In masculine attire I had traveled without being discovered. Protected by this disguise, I had filled almost every position on shipboard and had succeeded in earning a competency. 
something I never could have accomplished as a woman. It was not an experiment. I had tried it successfully for years, and would try it again. I took up the paper, and read the account of the expedition with more care. The ship was one of the staunchest that had ever been built, and had been provided with all the modern appliances for the comfort and protection of the crew, during a cruise that was intended to be indefinitely extended. None but bold and experienced seamen had been enlisted. As time was no object, it was intended to use the sails instead of steam whenever it was practicable. Hence the large space usually given to coal was mainly reserved for an unusual supply of carefully prepared provisions for a long sojourn in the Arctic regions. Everything that human foresight could devise for the success of this expedition had been provided. The daring commander had determined to take all the time that was needed for making careful surveys of the shorelines of the frozen north and sounding its seas. My mind was made up. I retired at once to my rooms. The male attire that I had used so successfully was in my trunks. I need not worry the reader at this time with the details of my hasty yet thorough preparation for concealing my identity from the keen observation of one who knew me so much better than the many with whom I had been associated in my wanderings. Suffice it to say that every arrangement was completed in my private apartments without exciting the suspicion of any person. I dressed myself in a neat sailor suit which was concealed from view beneath the ample folds of a fashionable wrapper. I packed my trunks, summoned a porter, and ordered my goods removed to furnished rooms that I had previously engaged. When there, I removed every article that would indicate that I was a woman, and with valise in hand, took my way to the dock where the Ice King was being fitted up with the greatest care by the experienced navigator in whose services it was my intention to enlist. It was in the early twilight of a glorious evening in May of 1890-something. I lingered a few moments on the wharf to enjoy the scene and to collect my faculties for the trial that was to come. I was tall and slender, and my appearance was youthful and refined. Yet I flattered myself with my long experience in this disguise, I would be able to successfully act the part I had determined upon. As I stepped on board, I met an officer who accosted me with the familiar salutation, Hello, Jack, what will you have? I want to see Captain Gano, I said. Where can I find him? He is in his cabin, he replied, and passed on. I gained the deck. The calm waters of the bay reflected the full rounded moon and her stellar attendants. The harbor was almost deserted. Vessels here and there dotted the placid surface of the water. Music, low, sweet, and plaintive, reached my ears. Its melancholy strains drew me forward. The soul of the performer seemed to float out upon the air through the tender caresses of the magic bow. The very waves, as they sparkled in the mellow moonbeams, seemed to dance to the sweet melody. It came from the captain's quarters. I passed in so quietly that I was not observed. As I expected, the musician was Captain Gano. He was so absorbed in the plaintive notes of the violin, through which his soul was speaking, that he did not notice my intrusion. He was in thought, far away and oblivious to his surroundings. I stood and carefully scanned the form before me. It was that of a man of mature years, broad shoulders and medium height, firmly knit, compactly built, and fair complexion. His eyes were blue, 
his nose a combination of grecian and roman his mouth firm and his entire bearing indicative of courage and strength of character his brow was broad and thoughtful his expression kind and firm everything left the impression that though comparatively young he had drained the cup of bitter disappointment to its dregs while i sympathized his sadness brought a feeling of sweet relief oh how my heart bounded and for the moment i felt impelled to fall upon his bosom and sob out the story of my wrongs but no this would not do i must be patient and first ascertain from his own lips in just what light he would regard me when he learned the whole truth i aroused him from his reverie with the inquiry is this captain gano he looked up quickly surprised to see a stranger in his cabin and responded yes young man i am captain gano and let me ask to what i am indebted for the honor of this visit did you not meet an officer who could attend to your wants i did i replied but i wanted to see and talk with captain gano his severity left his countenance and he bade me be seated now young man he said please state fully but briefly what you want for my time is entirely occupied i answered promptly and without preliminary explanations i said i have just learned from the papers that you are about to sail for the most thorough exploration of the arctic regions that has yet been attempted and i want to go with you he turned up the lamp which had been burning low and looked me full in the face i felt his searching gaze but withstood it with no exhibition of the fears i felt for the success of my plans but with inward tremor i awaited his reply after hesitating a moment he said deliberately you do not know what you ask you are young and refined this expedition must encounter dangers known and unknown and none but the strong and experienced should be permitted to make the venture it would be wrong in me to take a young man like you from the bosom of his family from society and all the opportunities for a successful and useful life to go with me on this perilous expedition the fact is you ought to return home and leave such hazardous adventures as this for those who have no hopes to be blasted and who wish for reasons of their own to hide themselves away from the world please tell me your name and where you come from my name sir i replied is jack adams and i have just returned from a three years cruise during which time i visited the leading seaports of the world i have become familiar with the life on the high seas in all the medial latitudes and now propose to explore the frozen north as to family i have none i am an orphan and all alone in the world i graduated from school at the head of my class and then shipped as cabin boy and worked my way up to a position of supercargo i have been a practical student of navigation never sailing twice on the same line of travel when i could avoid it i now offer my services to you because i want to go with you into the unexplored regions of the north i have had enough of the tropic and temperate zones if i never return i leave no one to mourn my loss he looked his astonishment and was visibly softened as he responded we have no need of a supercargo and we have all the seamen we want i have just formed a co-partnership with captain samuel battle who is not only an officer of ability and long experience in the arctics but an expert scientist and mathematician every place seems to be full i am not i replied seeking a position as supercargo nor am i asking any position that requires pay or even board 
if you can find room in your commissary for the supplies i stand ready to furnish i can and will do any work that may be assigned me all i want is to be permitted to go with this expedition take my own chances and pay my own way you seem very much in earnest mr adams and i am frank to admit that i admire your courage even if i doubt your judgment in this matter but what can you do and what evidence have you to offer that you can render valuable service in an expedition of this character as to pay i would not have you infer that i regarded it as any object to one of your adventurous disposition no one enlisted in this expedition is promised a salary but the common sailors and that is paid by captain battle and myself as to what i can do i responded i am by education and experience qualified to navigate the vessel and make every necessary scientific observation and calculation i am familiar with all that has been published on arctic exploration and discovery as to my ability you can best ascertain that by inquiring into what i know that is the best evidence of my training and experience on the high seas i do not shrink from the necessary examination you are right said he and i will consult my partner if it is agreeable to him you may take charge of our library and scientific instruments assist in our observations and keep a record of the expedition i will summon captain battle he touched an electric button and in a moment a bell sounded at his side he said to me captain battle will be here in a moment and i will leave this matter to him a moment later the same officer i had met when i first came aboard the ship entered and i was formally introduced he cordially shook my hand and captain gano told him what i wanted and quite unexpectedly to me said mr adams is admirably qualified and i think we had better place him in charge of the scientific work of the expedition we can assist him as occasion requires this will enable us to give our entire attention to the exigencies of the situation in the dangerous waters of the arctic regions while mr adams will keep a record of everything discovered that may be of value and send out duplicates of the same by the balloons as we intended so that if the expedition should be lost the winds may carry some account of our discoveries to the civilized portions of the globe evidently in the mind of captain gano i had already been appointed to the position which of all others i would have preferred and one that would always keep me near his own quarters and to this captain battle assented saying i met mr adams on his arrival and was favorably impressed with his appearance and evident determination to see the senior officer of the ice king and turning to me he continued i will now take pleasure in showing you through the library which will be your quarters during the voyage captain battle was the opposite of captain gano in his personal appearance he was powerfully built of medium height dark complexion dark hair and steel-gray eyes set beneath a broad and beetling brow the general contour of his features indicated courage firmness and strength of character he was just that type of man who might be expected to appear to the best advantage in some great emergency that demanded qualities of a high order all the appointments for the scientific work were of the first quality the library contained the leading scientific publications together with encyclopedias and historic and general literature carefully catalogued for easy reference every kind of scientific instruments charts maps globes cameras etc had been selected with the greatest care among the special supplies were the balloons to which captain gano had referred 
These were small and could be inflated at short notice. They were designed to be sent up from time to time with accounts of the expedition, its progress, discoveries, etc., hermetically sealed. It is well known that at the equinoxes, the heated air from the tropics ascends to the higher altitudes and flows toward the poles, while the cold air flows toward the equator to fill the vacuum, producing the equinoctial storms. These little balloons were expected to be carried south by the winds and find a resting place on the land surface where they might be picked up by civilized people. Or, if they fell into the water, the bottles would preserve the dispatches and the ocean currents might carry them into civilized countries. Thus every precaution was taken to secure to the world the benefit of any discovery that might be made, even though the expedition should be lost. I was well pleased with my quarters. All the surroundings would be, to me, most satisfactory, no matter what the trials and dangers that we might encounter. I was enlisted for the expedition, and in the position I preferred above all others, as it brought me into frequent consultation with the commander, and I should be able to acquaint myself with his present views and feelings, and note what changes had taken place since I saw him last. I lost no time in having my trunks brought on board and made ready for the voyage. The Ice King was soon at sea. We stopped at one of the Aleutian Islands where we took on our dog teams, which were to be used for explorations on the ice. The sledges were so constructed that they might readily be converted into boats that would accommodate the whole crew, and a good supply of provisions, in case we should be compelled to abandon the ship. We expected to be locked up in the ice during the winter, but with our sledges and dog teams we could continue our explorations for long distances in every direction, with the ship for headquarters. Captain Battle was a whaler and familiar with all the methods of Arctic travel. His long experience on these northern waters enabled him to foresee many of the dangers we were likely to meet and to make the needful preparations to overcome them. From this point, our voyage northward through Bering Strait and into the Arctic Ocean was without any incident worth recording. Our course, after passing the strait, was a little east of north to avoid the ice, until we reached longitude 165 degrees west of Greenwich, and then north. Captain Gano often came into my cabin to while away an hour in conversation. His marked friendship seemed to increase with each visit. He always addressed me familiarly as Jack, and in these conversations he became more and more confidential, and revealed to me more and more of his inner life, his early hopes, and subsequent disappointments. One evening, after we had been at sea about four months, he came into my cabin looking unusually gloomy. After the customary salutation, he lighted a cigar and fell into a brown study, not speaking to me for several minutes, when suddenly he said, Jack, did you ever think what mere trifles sometimes change the whole course of a lifetime? I often wonder at myself for being out here on this wild goose chase, with the certainty of loss of property, business, comfort, and possibly life itself, searching for something I have no use for, and which at best, if discovered, will only gratify an idle curiosity. And yet, this has been brought about by what was only a trifling incident. Have you ever thought of these strange effects which flow from trivial causes? He spoke bitterly, and I determined to take advantage of the opportunity to draw him out. I wanted to penetrate the inmost recesses of his being, 
and with this object in view, I replied, Yes, Captain, I have often thought of it and have realized it in my own experience. It sometimes seems little short of a miracle that after years of wandering, I am now here with you. In my case, I was not influenced by a mere trifle, but a stern necessity. I had absolutely nothing to lose, and I thought I might find something which, under the circumstances, would amply repay me for all the hardships and dangers I might have to encounter. But you were differently situated. You were independent. You had wealth, business, and influential friends. While I had been robbed of my patrimony and was thrown upon the world with nothing but my hands and brain to work with. My course was a necessity, but it is a mystery why you should abandon a profitable business and organize this expedition at such an enormous expenditure of labor and money, while you regard its avowed objects as matters of such little importance. Your course seems to involve a self-contradiction that I cannot comprehend. And thereby hangs a tale, said the captain. As a matter of fact, I never did attach any great importance to Arctic exploration. From my point of view, the discovery of the pole would be of no especial value to mankind, as no practical use could be made of it. Even the discovery of a productive country, which may be possible, could not greatly benefit the world, as it would be inaccessible to the masses of humanity whose condition would be improved by the discovery of a new country and cheap homes. While such a successful culmination would be of small benefit to the world, it would be of still less interest to myself. I really care but little about what we may find at the end of this voyage. Then I said, if such be the estimate that you place upon the objects of this expedition, I am more than ever curious to learn what could have impelled you to undertake it. You must have had a reason of some kind. I cannot understand how men can act without a motive. Yes, said he, I was impelled to organize this expedition by a power stronger than myself but when I ask myself what I expect to accomplish by it, truth compels me to answer, nothing. As to the motive, I suppose that I have been actuated by an all-absorbing desire to forget the miseries of the past in the activities of the present. But this is not the tale that unlocks the mystery, I responded. You have aroused my curiosity to a fever heat, and yet you fail to gratify it. It might be that I could pour oil on the troubled waters and possibly enable you to discover that you have been actuated by a mistaken conception, and that really there is nothing in the past that you should desire to forget. It would certainly do no harm to review the case, and it might reveal the fact that it was a source of misery simply because all the circumstances were not fully understood. I have no desire, said the captain, to conceal the story of my life from you, if you care to hear it, but I fully understand it and it is of such a nature as to admit of no remedy. Do not be too sure of that, I said, but until the story is told, of course I will not be able to form an intelligent opinion of the case. Yet observation and experience have convinced me that there are always two sides to every question, and that to get at the facts in all their bearings we must closely examine both sides. Well, said the captain, I see that you were cut out for a lawyer, and the wonder is how you came to be a sailor. You certainly have a judicial cast of mind, and to while away the monotony of the hour, I will submit the matter to you, reserving the right, however, to decide for myself. I have always exercised my natural right to examine every question from my own standpoint and decide it according to my own sense of right and wrong. 
it is the same old story of an all-absorbing love and a cruel disappointment followed by long years of suppressed anguish from which i am still striving to escape i was an orphan living with my bachelor uncle richard sage in one of the suburbs of new york city he was my guardian and the executor of the estate left me by my father my uncle was kind and indulgent and my widowed aunt who presided over his home was to me a loving mother and so my childhood days were passed in happy contentment one misty dreary morning my uncle announced at the breakfast table that he had been called to the bedside of his old friend james van ness who was supposed to be dying he said he would not return until his friend was much better or dead and not to be disappointed if he was absent for several days or possibly weeks a week later i saw my uncle drive up to the gate and assist a very beautiful young girl from the carriage he beckoned me to him and introduced me saying raphael i have brought you a little sister this is miss cassie van ness whose father i was called to see i have been made her guardian and this will be her future home both mother and father are dead and she has no clear relatives remember this and do everything in your power to make her home with us as happy as possible we at once became great friends cassie was at that time about fourteen or fifteen years of age and i was eighteen she proved to be the gayest brightest most winsome little lady i had ever seen i must have fallen in love with her at first sight i have often thought since he added slowly that even his satanic majesty might look entrancingly beautiful for to my intense sorrow cassie proved herself it seems to me a tenfold greater hypocrite than judas of old who betrayed with a kiss but enough of this our school days lasting some five years were to me one ceaseless round of delightful experiences which seemed to fill every vein and fibre of my being with unalloyed happiness during our vacations cassie and i were always together either at home or travelling and many were the excursions romps and drives we enjoyed i graduated at twenty-three and we laid our plans for the future i had inherited an interest in a line of steamers running between liverpool and new york which enabled us to frequently cross the atlantic during our vacations and visit the leading places of interest in great britain and on the continent i had acquired a taste for travel and it was determined that i should visit the orient while cassie returned to college to complete her study of the higher branches i was to be gone about three years during which time i would circumnavigate the globe and on my return we were to be married with these objects in view i secured through the influence of my uncle a lucrative position in the employ of a firm of importers whose trade extended to all parts of the eastern continent and australia on the evening before my departure i placed a brilliant diamond engagement ring on cassie's finger and a gold chain and locket of peculiar workmanship around her neck these presents were made from special designs for this purpose and the patterns destroyed i shall never forget the last night we spent together the appearance of my affianced bride in her splendid evening dress her diamond engagement ring sparkling on her lovely hand the gold chain and diamond set locket and her luxuriant suit of golden hair handsomely ornamented formed a picture of beauty indelibly imprinted upon my memory my ship sailed from one of the piers on the hudson near the battery we contemplated the circumnavigation of the globe by way of cape horn the sandwich islands japan china australia africa 
Europe, and thence returning to America, stopping at all the principal seaport cities and points of interest on our voyage. This would enable Cassie and me to keep up our correspondence with no very long interruptions. For the first year of my absence, at every port I received a package of letters from home, and this always contained letters from Cassie. We had agreed to write to each other at least once a week without waiting for replies, and it often occurred that I got a whole package of letters from her at one time, and the perusal of these affectionate missives was the one all-absorbing pleasure to which I looked forward when we came into port. Whatever else might be lacking, Cassie's loving letters never failed. At last, however, they ceased all at once. Letters from my uncle came regularly, and through them I learned of Cassie, but I could get no word from her. I wrote to her every week, but my letters brought no response. I was miserable, and urged my uncle to find out what was the matter and let me know if my letters came safely. My uncle's replies were at first evasive, but at last, with an expression of the most cordial sympathy for me, he informed me that my letters came regularly, but that Cassie had changed her mind and they remained unopened. He enclosed a draft on London for the balance due on my estate, together with a complete statement of the account from the date of his taking charge, and the findings of the court as to all the property and investments that came to me from my father. Everything was complete and duly certified, so there was nothing that demanded my presence in New York. He advised me not to return home, but continue in my present position, as Cassie was to be married in a short time, and my presence would be painful to her as well as to myself, and embarrassing to everyone concerned. I was thunderstruck. I did not, could not, would not believe that Cassie was false to our mutual and oft-repeated pledges of love and fidelity to each other. I could get no satisfaction from my uncle. My aunt had been dead several years. I wrote to my lawyer to learn, if possible, the truth of the reported engagement and approaching marriage. His reply was prompt, stating that it was not only true, but that the marriage had already taken place. He wrote that he had been called in by my uncle, who was in feeble health, to make out the papers in regard to the estate of Cassie Van Ness, which she was anxious to have settled satisfactorily to herself before the marriage. These financial matters being arranged, wrote my lawyer, what was my surprise to be called upon to witness her marriage to Richard Sage? Financially she did well, but it is hard for me to believe that it was a love match. Your uncle, however, is certainly much infatuated with her, and she is indeed beautiful. This same letter contained a flattering offer from a firm of New York importers for my interest in the steamship line, and I advised my attorney to close the deal at once and forward the proceeds to London and also to dispose of all my property in and about New York, lists of which were in his possession. I had made up my mind never to return home, as it would be distressing to me and certainly embarrassing to my uncle. After that, my only New York correspondence was with my attorney. When I reached London, I found a letter from my attorney with drafts on the Bank of England for all my interests in America. This letter also contained the information that my uncle was in great trouble, his marriage with Cassie having resulted in much unhappiness. She had suddenly deserted him without giving any reason for her strange conduct. She merely left a note stating that she would not live with him. This was the last that had been heard from her. Of course, added my attorney, it would be next to impossible to find her in this large city if she desires to keep herself concealed. 
since that time i have been a wanderer carrying little whither i went so that my mind was fully occupied i purchased a staunch ship in which i cruised for years avoiding as far as practicable the regular lines of trade and often sailing without a cargo searching for a contentment never to be found at last i conceived the idea of getting away from civilization altogether joining in the work of arctic exploration and if possible reaching the pole with this end in view i had the ice king built according to special designs and adapted so far as human foresight and ingenuity could devise for a long sojourn in the frozen north and now here we are in the arctic ocean liable at any moment to be caught between the ice fields which appear on either side and possibly crushed what is to come next god only knows such is a brief statement of the perfidy of the woman i loved and its consequences and this is why i am out here on this perilous expedition searching for something that i care very little about i think you will agree with me that it admits of no remedy it does not look that way to me i responded i would be unwilling to condemn your affianced bride until i had heard her side of the story it may be that the marriage to your uncle was secured by unfair means and that when she discovered the fraud in her desperation she started out to find you in that case the remedy would be for you to find her and renew your plighted faith never said captain gano even if your supposed case is correct it could not set aside the facts she knew that in marrying my uncle she was false to me and when she deserted him with no legal cause for separation she was false to her husband to whom she was bound in the holy bonds of matrimony she acted from her own choice she was not compelled to engage herself to me and no law could have forced her to marry my uncle her conduct in both cases reveals her innate perfidy of character and under no circumstances could i as an honorable man except such a woman as my wife her tarnished reputation if nothing else would place an insurmountable barrier between us even if she were not legally the wife of another man i was paralyzed i had indeed succeeded in getting from him an emphatic expression of sentiment covering my own case i had penetrated the innermost recesses of his being but had fanned to a flame the slumbering fires of a volcano only to be submerged in the eruption of molten lava the blow was so unexpected and so sudden that i was stupefied and my astonishment left no room for grief which gave me a moment for reflection here i was in the ship with him far within the arctic circle at the beginning of the arctic winter and with the certainty of being locked up in the ice for months if not for years i could not get away from him if i would and from his own lips i had heard my conduct denounced as the acme of perfidy and my love spurned as something treacherous and vile bitterly and in the most emphatic manner he had declared that as an honorable man he could never associate himself in the tender relations of marital love with one of my tarnished reputation in his own estimate he had already assigned me a place among the most debased and abandoned characters and all there was left for me to do was to preserve my disguise in order to secure even respectful treatment from the man i loved as the full sense of the situation dawned upon me in all its crushing weight of humiliation and anguish i must have fallen at his feet in a dead faint but for the clangor of the great bell which had been agreed upon as the signal of immediate peril to summon each one to the post that had been assigned him in case of sudden emergencies 
the alarm came to me as a sweet relief from the agony tenfold more difficult to endure than any possible hardships or dangers from an arctic storm amid towering mountains of ice there was no time for grief the emergency demanding prompt action was upon us and we hurried out upon deck according to previous arrangements captain gano seized the wheel and captain battle as an experienced arctic navigator took command while i with glass and notebook stood by the wheel to make observations and to render any assistance to captain gano that might be required the cause of the alarm at once became apparent the stiff breeze that had been blowing all day from the southwest had now increased to a gale and the icebergs which for days were becoming more numerous on our starboard quarter had formed a solid pack which was evidently landlocked as it remained stationary while on the larboard a solid field of ice of vast extent was approaching it was only a question of a few hours at the utmost when these two great ice walls must come together and it would be destruction for us to be caught in their deadly embrace retreat was impossible the only open channel was the one we were pursuing the walls on either side were continuous and with my glass i could see the channel behind us blocked with icebergs urged on in our wake by wind and waves as if determined not to let us escape our only safety seemed to be in our being able to sail beyond these two continuous walls of ice before they came together captain battle with his glass kept up a rapid survey of the horizon and gave orders through his trumpet as calmly as if scenes like this were matters of everyday occurrence and captain gano at the wheel responded as if he was part of the machinery which he handled with rapidity and precision it was a scene never to be forgotten the midnight sun hung just above the horizon off to our larboard an unbroken wall of ice extending as far as the eye assisted by a powerful glass could reach was bearing down upon us on our starboard another wall of ice against which the waves were dashing in all their fury stood apparently as firm as the granite shores against which it rested behind us the channel was filled with detached masses of ice which if caught between these ice walls might hasten the closing of the channel before us could we escape was the all-pervading question that propounded itself to us every sail was set and under the pressure of every pound of steam our boilers could carry the ice king leaped forward like a frightened deer as if conscious of the doom that was impending for hours we kept up this reckless speed the foam flew in blinding spray from the ship's quarters fretted along her sides and left a broad white line in her wake the whistling of the wind in her rigging and the regular plunging of her engines made pandemonium on board it was indeed a race for life and in my perturbed state of mind i actually enjoyed the excitement almost hoping that it might culminate in the destruction threatened with the courage of despair i calmly surveyed the scene and took my notes occasionally assisting captain gano at the wheel this was the first real danger that we had encountered and my interview with the captain had given me a reckless daring to meet it without a tremor that seems almost miraculous we still kept up this rapid flight and as far as the eye could reach the two great ice walls still confronted each other and the channel of open water continued to grow more narrow soon we had to veer from side to side to avoid collisions with the jagged shorelines of ice but nowhere was there any indication that when they came together an open space would be formed sufficient to protect the ship we were compelled to reduce our speed and still the ice fields were coming closer together 
and at last we were forced to creep along a narrow, crooked channel between two great packs of ice mountains which often towered far above the mainmast of the Ice King. The outlook was desperate, but the ice on our larboard ceased to approach, and for a moment it seemed as if we might escape into open water. But not so. Our way was blocked. An ice mountain loomed up before us, and we came to a full stop. It was this that had probably checked the advance of the moving ice pack, and saved us from the cruel nip which has crushed so many hapless vessels in these dangerous waters. The Ice King lay between two vast overhanging ice mountains, which towered high above us. In the front was the huge iceberg, which had prevented the nearer approach of the wall of ice. The channel in which we lay could only be closed by the breaking up of the fields of ice behind us, and we could see no reason why this should occur. If the ice fields remained intact until the freezing of the channel, there would be no collision, and we would be safe for the time being. The weather had become intensely cold, and we began to feel that the danger had passed by when an ominous roar and the sharp reports of breaking ice gave warning of the only thing we had to dread. A violent earthquake was lashing the ocean into fury, and the ice pack was broken into innumerable fragments, which were crashing against each other in the most violent commotion. Captain Battle shouted from the lookout where he had posted himself, Save yourselves if you can. The channel is closing and the ship is lost. I looked up, and as I did so, the lofty ice mountains between which we lay seemed to be falling directly down upon us, and at the same time, a violent shock threw me upon the deck with a force that must have rendered me unconscious for a few seconds. End of chapter 2